I'll give you a little bit more time to find Habakkuk than if we were preaching in John. I assume that we'll hear some pages shuffling. Um, And for the record, there's no shame in looking in the table of contents to find out where in the world your Bible uh, Habakkuk is located. Yeah, it's going to take a while. That's okay. Uh, This introduction will take a little bit longer than some of our normal introductions as well as we launch this new series. Well, Happy New Year. Yeah, okay. Um, I won't do anything along the lines of saying uh, those lines that you saw, uh, you know, let's, 2020 is hindsight, and uh, 2020, W-O-N, 2021, those really weren't that funny when you posted them on Facebook, so I'm not going to go with those standard openings, and we're just going to say Happy New Year, good to see you, and good to be in the Word with you again this morning. Um, just, uh, just to kind of fill out Nate's announcement there, um, as it is a new year, and as many of you maybe are continuing a Bible reading program or thinking I should probably start one now that we're a few days in, um, the church does have a Bible reading program that we engage together and encourage you to do. There are hard copies of this out there at the table couple chapters a day that you can read through. There's also digital copies online if you prefer that, uh, and just a way to kind of follow with a number of people who are reading through the Bible here at our church, and maybe your discipleship is uh, is doing that, your discipleship group is doing that as well, and it's a chance to read the Word together. So just an encouragement to you if uh, you're feeling like, hey, I I should be reading Scripture more. Maybe grab one of those on your way out. Some of you might be saying um, it's really hard to read through the Bible and it's hard to understand a lot of the passages, and I would agree with you. Um, so we are launching another uh, class this uh, on Thursday evenings. Next week was the starting date of that, January 14th. We'll be studying the Old Testament prophets, which kind of follows along with our preaching series over the next three months. We'll particularly be looking at the book of Isaiah, And uh, I'm really looking forward to engaging in this class and would invite you to join us in that class. For some of you, you may have read through your Bible dozens of times, perhaps, and this would be a great class for you to join in on. We would love to have you. For some of you, your only Bible reading occurs on Sunday mornings when you come to church, maybe, and we would love to have you in that class as we launch into the book of Isaiah Whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether you've been a Christian or are not yet a Christian, we would invite you into this class to study God's Word together. You can sign up on the website, crossgrace.org. Starts on the 14th. It's about seven weeks and um, Thursday nights on Zoom. So love to have you with that. Uh, One other reading encouragement, Nate mentioned this, I put it online this week, is I would really encourage you as we go through these short little books of the Bible over the next three months to read them individually, as a family, in your home, once, twice, whatever time, however many times a week. I listened to the book of Habakkuk online, and I read it this week. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to read or listen to the book of Habakkuk. It's one of the shorter ones. It's only three chapters. Some of them are up to like nine or 14 chapters, so they're going to take you maybe a half hour or so. But each of them are short, and so you can, you can engage them very quickly. It doesn't even have to be on your commute. It could be like while you're washing dishes or something along those lines. You can listen to Habakkuk. And listening through the entire book will help you learn from that prophet and from God through that prophet. It'll help you track with us because we don't have the opportunity to preach through every verse of these books with the time that we're given. So just an encouragement there to read Habakkuk this week 
And then in a few weeks, you can read Micah, and a few weeks later, Nahum, and then a few others, as we'll announce to you. So hopefully by now, you are at Habakkuk. If you're not, um, it's okay to ask a neighbor for help, uh, maybe, or it might be time to just use your phone and give up on that one, okay? Well, why spend time in the minor prophets? We've asked that question a few times in, the, in our announcements. It does seem, biblically speaking, that John or Romans or maybe even Isaiah is more important, doesn't it? I mean, Habakkuk? <laughs> Some of you are like, is that really in the Bible? Are you sure? Um, if John and Isaiah and Paul are like the Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, and Ted Williams of the Bible, Habakkuk is like Crash Davis. And a few of you maybe caught that reference. The rest of you, I'll tell you later. But it's like a guy who lingers in the minor leagues all the times and never quite makes the majors. Like, is, is he really that important? Do we really need to spend time studying this guy's career and words and work? In baseball, if you're a baseball fan, the goal is to spend as much of your pro career in the majors, right? You want to be in the majors, on the Twins or whoever. You want to make it to that level because that's where the money is, that's where the glory is, that's where the fame is. You don't want to spend your entire career playing for the Toledo Mud Hens or the Durham Bulls or the Akron Rubber Ducks. That's the minor leagues. And sometimes when we look at Old Testament prophets, it kind of feels like that. Like Isaiah, he's the big boy. Jeremiah, those are the guys that really hit it out of the park all the time, earn the glory. Habakkuk, he's that catcher that lingers in the minor leagues. But we're going to spend two weeks there, and I'm looking forward to it. Minor prophets are not minor because they're unimportant. They're called minor. It's, it's really an unfortunate name. Um, we have a value that we attach to the word minor that's not very good, I guess. It's, they're called minor just because of their length. They're generally smaller and certainly less well-known than the big boys of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah. Minor prophets, though, have unique voices with important God-ordained, spirit-inspired messages for God's church. God had a message for his people in the Old Testament in those days. In the Minor Prophets, that message is often more focused and concentrated than the mammoth books of Isaiah or Ezekiel. In the Minor Prophets, we get a little bit more focused message sometimes. So there's a joy and an opportunity to really zero in on some of the message of the Old Testament prophets. If you remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a very famous verse, we'll put it on the screen here. One of the things that Paul says is he writes to Timothy, encouraging Timothy to be a minister of the word, a man who preaches God's word, the scriptures. Paul reminds Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. All scripture is certainly includes the words of Moses and the Psalms of David and the prophecies of Isaiah, but that all scripture also includes our friend Habakkuk. Paul was referencing Habakkuk among many other Old Testament authors in that verse. And this means that Habakkuk is profitable for us, the church. Obadiah is profitable. Haggai is profitable. God inspired that. God inspired these Old Testament writers to record their words for the good of his people and ultimately even for the good of his church hundreds of years later. Old Testament's prophets had a particular role. Their role was to speak God's words 
to God's people and remind them of God's character and his covenant. That was the role of an Old Testament prophet. Sometimes, and quite often, that word was a word of judgment. And so we get those famous words of woe to you, which you find repeated throughout so many of the prophets. We'll focus in on a few of those next week. Woe to you. Here's what God is going to do for breaking covenant. At times, it's not just judgment, but at times, this this word to God's people is a promise, a promise of hope. We read one a few weeks ago, unto you a Savior is born. Ultimately, the the prophets are saying in the Old Testament, here's what life with God as our king should look like. Here's where we are failing as his people. Here's the certainty of judgment. And here's the hope that we have with a merciful God. The prophets are reminding God's people who God is and what life is like with him as our king. Occasionally, prophets will also function in a priestly role, where they're not just speaking God's word to God's people. They're also representing the people of God to God in prayer and petition. Habakkuk serves as such a role. He's not just speaking God's word to God's people. He's also voicing the people's concerns to God throughout this book. He serves as a representative of the people. And so this book often feels more like a psalm or it feels like the book of Job than a a, a traditional uh, prophetic book. There's a poetic dialogue between Habakkuk and God. In fact, if you look at the first verse, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, that word oracle there in your ESV Bibles can also be translated burden. This is the burden that Habakkuk and the people of God had at that time. And we'll get into that in just a second. So in the course of this series, we're going to cycle through a variety of people who are preaching. We're each going to take about two weeks, and we're going to take one of these prophets, like Habakkuk, and we're going to study that prophet and learn from that prophet for a few weeks. Most of the time, we'll have two sermons. So I'll be here for two weeks in Habakkuk. Um, Poor Haggai only gets one sermon because he's only a chapter long. Um, So we would encourage you to read and listen to those books as we study and preach. And my approach over the next two weeks will be to do a book survey, to look at the whole book. What's the message of this whole book this week? And then next week, we're going to dive into one particular theme of Habakkuk. Well, Habakkuk in two weeks. Here we go. Let me pray as we get started. Father, your word is a gift to us. And that is not just the Gospels, that is not just the letters of Paul, that is not just the Psalms and the Proverbs, that is also books like Obadiah and Habakkuk. And so may we learn and benefit and grow through this little book. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, let me start off by just giving you a brief note on Habakkuk's situation. And you can find this in verse 3. Here's what Habakkuk says life is like in his day and time. Verse 3, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. There's Habakkuk in his day. Destruction, violence, strife, contention. This will not be much of a feel-good message, you can maybe see. Um, Habakkuk had a rough situation, right? But just pause for a second, and let's, let's do something we shouldn't do. And if you've taken classes with me, I'm breaking my own rule. Let's pull this verse out of context for just a second and say that could be a theme for our last year, couldn't it? As a country, as a people, as a culture, 
If you list those things, destruction, violence, strife, contention, some of you are thinking, that sounds like my home. Many of us are thinking, that sounds like our country right now. That sounds like our world. Habakkuk will be a very relevant book for us. The common reaction to this is simply, God, get us out of this. Help us escape destruction, violence, strife, and contention. And so for many of us, as we move into the new year, we have these hopes and visions of everything's just going to be washed clean and a new year. It's Habakkuk's desire. He's going to say, God, show up, get us out of this mess, and towards more peaceful, prosperous times. But at the end, he's going to say something different. At the end of the book, in chapter 3, verse 18, if you flip forward there, I want you to see this verse. Habakkuk says this, and these are the words that he lands on. Yet, and that can almost refer all the way back to destruction, violence, strife, contention. All those things are true. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, if you let that sink in right there, that's the message of Habakkuk. Bad things are happening Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk, through this book, will move from questioning God's sovereignty and goodness to rejoicing in the God of his salvation, finding strength in the Lord. I wonder how far we are from that. How are you doing with that? Here's Habakkuk's resolution, if I can read verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. Here's what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, that's a bad thing in that day and time, nor fruit on the vines, that's another really bad thing for an agrarian farmer culture. Though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. For those of you who aren't farmers, these are really bad things. Though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Again, really bad things. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. I wonder if you could say something like this right now. Though my kids can't go to school this week, and they're at home, though I'm working from home in my pajamas again, though we've run low on toilet paper and our trip to Disney got canceled last year, Though my job is a bit tenuous right now, and my nation seems to be tearing itself apart politically, though the vaccine has yet to sweep away the pandemic, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's a hard thing to say, is it not? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. And even if you narrow it down to just some of the things we face in our day-to-day life. I had one of those like months where just things break all the time, and so I kind of wrote this out. Though the timing belt on the Honda needed replacing, and the van needed a new water pump, though the furnace needed a new damper, and the dishwasher arm keeps breaking every time you pull open the top rack, though the drain in the tub leaked into the garage, though we ran out of coffee on Wednesday morning... <laughs> Will I rejoice in the Lord? Will I take joy in the God of my salvation? Or will I question God's control and love for me? Will I doubt the God of my salvation? 
What's your view of God like when destruction and violence, strife and contention seem to be normal? What's your view of God like when a bunch of inconvenient hardships happen in your home? Usually we say things like, God has blessed me, or you know, back a few years ago we used the hashtag blessed thing all the time, but it was usually in reference to success, winning the game, buying a new home, getting a raise. What about when the reverse is happening? Here's our goal for our two weeks in Habakkuk. We want to allow God's spirit through this short little book to guide us into a joy-filled faith as opposed to a joyless, begrudging acceptance of circumstances or a fake, a fake joy and naivete. There's a, a way to have faith that is joyless and it can kind of be a begrudging acceptance of God's control. Yes, God's in control, but I'm not really sure he's good. I know God's in control, but I don't really like what he's doing. There's also a pseudo-joyful naivete that acknowledges God's goodness, but it doesn't really wrestle with hard issues of his providence and sovereignty. God is good, so that means he can't have anything to do with suffering, we sometimes think. Last week, Nate took us through Psalm 121, a great psalm that talks about God as our keeper. And if Nate hadn't preached and guided us in that psalm, you could take that psalm and, and misinterpret it as God will keep us from all bad things. God would never let bad things happen to us. Thankfully, Nate didn't do that because he faithfully led us through that psalm. But we can very easily think that if God is God, then bad things shouldn't happen to us. But they do. And so we have to wrestle with that. And that's what Habakkuk wrestles with. There's very little that is known about the prophet Habakkuk or his time and place. We don't know a lot. A lot of the other prophets will we'll be able to give you some more historical details for you nerds that like that kind of thing. Habakkuk, we don't know that much about. We know his name. We know he was a prophet. We know a general time when he had his ministry, but that's about it. There's little historical detail in the book or outside the book. There's no setting info at the front end of the book. There is a forecast of a future invasion of Judah, but that's about all we have. So let me just kind of draw the big picture for you, and this will be helpful as we launch into this service, uh, this, this series here. Israel is in the middle of these collection of massive empires. You put a little dot where Israel is, and everywhere around it, there's this major world power. To the south is Egypt, a kind of a powers on the wane for Egypt. They're kind of going downhill, losing their influence in the, in the, um, in the world at that time, but certainly a power from, uh, if you look at the map. To the north of Israel is Assyria, a nation that is just chewing up territory and growing and swelling with power. To the east of Israel is the emerging empire of Babylon. And so you can kind of get the picture. And in the middle of all of that is this little country of Israel, who at times has some power and influence in the times of David and Solomon, but for the most part is constantly sandwiched between a war between Assyria and Egypt or the conquest of Assyria as they try to grow their empire. Or as Babylon will rise from the east, they'll move towards the west because that's where all the, the goods are and all the people, and that will include Israel. Further east from Babylon are 
is the nation of Persia, which will come after them. To the west is Greece, which a few hundred years after Habakkuk and the minor prophets will rise to power, and the conflict between Persia and Greece will engulf Israel as well. Israel's right in the middle of this world contention between empires striving for power, and they suffer for it often. As Israel became a nation, as it became a kingdom under Saul and then David and Solomon, the three main kings, the kingdom of Israel divided after Solomon's reign. Divided between the north and the south. The north, Israel, and the south, Judah. Not too long after that division, Israel was swallowed up by the Assyrians. God sent them in to judge Israel's wickedness. Judah remained as a kingdom and cycled through bad king and another bad king and then a worse king an evil king, and then a fairly good king, and then another bad king, and then just a downright wicked king, and then they too were conquered. Some of those kings are familiar names like Josiah and Hezekiah. They sound vaguely familiar to most of us. Others of them are not very familiar and, to be honest, sound a little made up, like Amon and Jehoahaz. They're real, but you've probably never heard of them or studied them in depth. The world at that time was hard. For the average Israelite, it was difficult. Survival was difficult. It was not helped by wicked kings who led their people into apostasy and idolatry. And you get a sense of what life was like religiously from reading 1 Kings 21, 1 through 6 as an example. Just listen to this. I'll put it up on the screen here as well. Here's one of the kings. Manasseh did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the pagan nations whom the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan altars his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He constructed an Asherah pole, just as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed before all the forces of heaven and worshipped them. He even built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord, the place where the Lord said his name should be honored. He built those altars for all the forces of heaven in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Manasseh even sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the world's sight. So you've got an international situation that's very difficult, and you've got a religious internal situation that is also filled with apostasy and idolatry. Judah at the time maybe could still give token nod to worshiping Yahweh, their covenant God, the God of the Bible, but they would add other gods, other Canaanite deities to their smorgasbord. Struggling with fertility, well, maybe, maybe instead of going to Yahweh, just... just um, there's all kinds of fun fertility rites you can engage with in the worship of Asherah. So try some of that and see if that works for you. If you're looking for if you're looking like a bad harvest ahead of you, maybe Baal might be able to help. And so if you go through some of his rituals and make the right sacrifices, you can still worship God, Yahweh, but try Baal a little bit. He might be able to help too. If you're concerned about enemy nations threatening your farm, your property, your city, well, maybe try sacrificing a kid or two to Molech because he seems to be able to help sometimes. And that's what Israel was doing. That's what Judah was doing. That's what God was concerned about. Internally, things are a mess with Judah's apostasy and wickedness, spiritual adultery 
and rampant idolatry characterized the kings and the people of Judah. And so faithful men like Habakkuk looked at the situation around them and said to Yahweh, How long, O Lord? How long do we have to deal with this destruction and violence, strife and contention? Where are you? Externally, war seems to be on the horizon as Assyria is coming from the north. Egypt is still pushing from the south. Babylon might be coming from the east. There's rumors of that. How long, O Lord? Immorality within and international conflict without. And Habakkuk says, what is God doing? So let's just kind of trace through the book of Habakkuk here briefly. Habakkuk starts in verses 1 through 4 with a question. And it's that question that I just said. How long, O Lord? Where is God in this mess? He asks that question, and you can see it in verse 3, second half of verse 3 we read earlier. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. It's eerily similar to our day and age. Destruction, violence, strife, contention, injustice, wickedness, perverted justice. Where is God? Why is God allowing this? How could God allow this? In most superhero movies, there's a scene in a movie where the superhero or someone returns at the right time, right? It's a deus ex machina moment, the God from the machine moment. Gandalf rises over the hill at Helm's Deep and the people, uh, the the warriors find hope in that and defeat the enemy. Um, The resurrected Avengers come out of the portal in Endgame, you know, and uh, save everything. And that's what Habakkuk is longing for. Probably not specifically those moments, but that type of moment. Where is God in this mess? And God answers. And I love this. Look at verse 5. Here's what God says. Look among the nations, Habakkuk, and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Just stop there for a second. Isn't that great? That's a great verse right there. Man, Oh God, where are you? I'm doing something. Oh, thank you, God. That's where you feel right now with Habakkuk. Whew, thank you. I was wondering. I was concerned. I thought maybe you fell asleep or something was happening. Where are you? Thank you for coming. Well, what are you going to do? Tell me about the details. Verse 6. For behold, God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Um... That was not what we were expecting with the follow-up, right? God, you said you were going to do something. We were really excited about that. I'm not sure that's the best plan. You can almost feel that with Habakkuk, right? God says, I'm doing something. The likely reaction is, finally, we can't wait. Rescue us. And in the reality, God says, I'm raising up a nation that will devour you. The Babylonians were a ruthless nation, just like the Assyrians, wiped out whole cities, took other cities captive, brought them, you know, took sons away from mothers, 
just everything that you know about in, in terms of ancient warfare and the brutality of it characterized the Babylonians. And God says, I'm going to use them. Habakkuk replies, verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How can you let the Babylonians, who I think are worse than the Israelites, Habakkuk says, how can you let them come in? Then you go down to verse 16. Is, 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 there's this whole beautiful poetry of them sacrificing to their net. They're taking people captive. The last part of verse 17 then, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are you just going to allow that to happen, God? This, this seems like it's going from bad to worse in Habakkuk's mind. He says, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you're eternal. You've ordained them as a judgment, verse 12. But Babylon is awful. How are these things compatible? How is your sovereignty and their wickedness, how can those things fit together? Show me, God. I'm going to wait and I want to see, is what he says. And so God answers again. And God's going to say that their judgment will come. Wait for it. God's glory will be displayed. So wait for it with faith and faithfulness. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's saying, I'm not working in your time constraints and your time restrictions that you want me to work in, Habakkuk. And then he references the Babylonians. Behold, their soul, his soul, is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Critical phrase in the book of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by his faith. Trust me. Have faith in me. God will, over the course of chapter 2, pronounce a series of woes upon the Babylonians and really signal their coming doom and shame. In verse 14, God says, uh, the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so God references, says, one day my glory will be known and the Babylonians will be put to shame. Verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to the Babylonians and utter shame will come upon their glory. God condemns them for their wickedness, but says to Habakkuk, I'm using them still. Wait. Just wait and see. Chapter 3, then, is Habakkuk's response. It's a prayer. It's a prayer. And one of the, the most beautiful phrases in this whole book is found in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk acknowledges God's sovereignty. He acknowledges God's justice and righteousness. He acknowledges God's heart and capacity for mercy to rebels. And it's that understanding, that 
holding in tension God's sovereignty and God's mercy that leads Habakkuk to his final resolution, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even if everything else fails, Habakkuk comes to the conclusion, God is my strength. Do we come to that conclusion? The last year, as you well know, has felt like we've been backed into a corner by Mike Tyson and just right, left, right, left, and we're like ready for that uppercut almost to hit. Can we smile as we take those punches and say, yet I will rejoice, like Rocky about to make his comeback as he finds some hidden source of strength. God is our strength, yet we will rejoice. How? Because God in his sovereignty and mercy is our God, and we find our strength in him, not in our circumstances. The sovereign, merciful God of the universe is our God, and he is working all things for his glory and our good. Our joy is not fixed, is, is fixed to that end, not to our immediate circumstances. And that's what should lead us to a joy-filled faith. Joyful faith does not come in knowing all of the why answers to the world situation or our own individual circumstances. Joyful faith comes in knowing, enjoying, and trusting God over all things. The whys are secondary to the who. So we know God, we enjoy God, and we trust him. Biblical Christianity is not just acknowledging God as sovereign, it's enjoying God's sovereignty. It's enjoying a God who controls all things. Listen, our default assumption is that God is somehow like a God of karma. If you do good, then you should get good things. If you do bad, then bad things should happen to you. And that's how God should operate. In reality, that describes nightmare Santa more than it describes the God of the Bible. Doesn't it? Making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. That's not how God operates. God is who he is. The biblical view is that God ordains all things. God is merciful, then, toward his people. And so we joyfully live with faith. But that is hard. When the Babylonians are coming from the east, the Assyrians are threatening from the north, and the Egyptians still kind of linger in the south. That is hard when the drain pipe in your bathtub breaks and your dishwasher arm can't get fixed, it seems, despite your best efforts. We question God's sovereignty then. And we question God's goodness We ask why. How long, O Lord? Well, God does not always dole out specific reasons for every good or bad thing that happens to us. Habakkuk did not get to see the short-term why. Rarely do we. And so in this world, bad people profit sometimes. They succeed sometimes. Temporarily. Faithful people suffer sometimes. Temporarily. Pandemics linger, bathroom drains malfunction, cars break down, people get sick, people die. And we don't always know why. Rarely do we discover specific reason for God's tough providence. But we always have a God who is over all things and with us. And this is what God shows Habakkuk. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. 
After condemning the Babylonians, God says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And in response to that, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. When Habakkuk's eyes focus more on God's glory than his own circumstances, he finds joyful faith. Let me say that again. When Habakkuk's eyes focus more on God's glory than his own circumstances, his own painful circumstances, he finds joyful faith. Listen, we may acknowledge a theological truth about God and his sovereignty, but do we love it? We may know and trust in his promises about his glory filling the earth at the end, but do we find daily hope in it? Living by faith in the day-to-day struggles of life, whether they're big like Babylonian invasions or small like not being able to find your shoes this morning, it's where our weakness can be exposed. And God may not tell us the why that that happened, but he does say, I'm in control. I used to watch this old house with my dad. Still watch it every once in a while because I love Norm Abrams. He's kind of my hero. I start to dress like him the older I get more and more. There's a moment in these shows like this old house where the design has been shown and people have like, oh, that's good design, but a wall needs to be taken out. And it's a big deal, right? It's going to change things. It's going to be hard. It's going to be messy. There's a point in those episodes, whether it's this old house or HGTV, whatever you watch, where the homeowner is incredibly freaked out because a wall needs to go or something drastic needs to take place. There's a struggle to trust the designer or contractor. It's easy to trust them when they show you a a picture or a blueprint. It's easy to, to trust them in hindsight when you see the results. But that moment, that hard moment, that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's the place of faith. That's where, when it comes to God, the righteous will live by faith. Listen, some of you may be wrestling with this, and you should. Are you asking me to put on a happy face in the midst of deep suffering? Well, no, this is deeper and richer and more eternal. The world wants you to paste over suffering. God says, find joy in me during this. In the story of God's grand plan of salvation, this all comes to a fulcrum a few hundred years after Habakkuk, as God's own son, Jesus, went to the cross. His disciples and followers asked, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why is this evil happening to Jesus? If Jesus is God and therefore sovereign, why is this his plan? Jesus' death on the cross was arguably arguably the most unfair act in history. Perfection was slaughtered on the cross. But God was doing something people struggled to believe. Our salvation is found in the violent death of God's sinless son. That's not fair. Be silent. Acknowledge God's wisdom and glory seen in the cross. In wrath, God remembered mercy. And now those who put their faith in Christ are made righteous through his seemingly unjust death. The righteous live by faith in Christ's work. God does not give the why answers to every question. The righteous live by faith in Christ.
Let's pray, and then next week we'll take a deeper dive into the middle section of Habakkuk. Our Father, you are from everlasting. Your splendor covers the heavens. You ordain all things because you are the sovereign Lord of all. And this means that you are righteous in your judgments because we are sinful, rebellious creatures. We deserve your wrath, and so we are all silent in the face of your glory. But our hearts can't help but thank you because in your wrath against sin, you have remembered mercy. In sending Jesus, you both poured out your judgment on sin and granted mercy to those whose faith is in Christ. So thank you for answering Habakkuk's prayer. Thank you for remembering mercy with us. And so help us to find joy in your sovereignty because it is coupled with your mercy. Help us to find joy in your providence because it reveals your plan to fill the earth with your glory. Help our eyes to be captured by the grandeur of your glory more than the fleeting pleasures around us. Father, help us to find joy in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.